the name Chernov is one of the big names in the interpreting profession, like Kaminka, Herbert, or Seleskovich. So it's no surprise that when I sat down with Sergei Chernov, now the chief interpreter at the International Monetary Fund, he started with a bit of a disclaimer. I'm a second generation interpreter, and my father was um, an interpreter and uh, one of, um, well, what you might call the founding fathers of our profession and uh, of interpretation, anticipation, inferencing, all that good stuff. Sergei's father, Geli Vasilievich Chernov, was an eminent interpreter and a leading interpreting scholar. His most well-known publication is probably Inference and Anticipation in Simultaneous Interpreting, or the good stuff, as Sergei calls it. But there is a second disclaimer, actually, which has to do with Sergei's job. What we will be talking about here are uh, my views, uh, my personal views and opinions that uh, do not in any way reflect the uh, views and opinions of the International Monetary Fund. You are listening to Lange FM, and my guest today is conference interpreter Sergei Chernov. Of course, no one starts their career working as the most senior interpreter at one of the leading international organizations. So I was interested, first of all, in Sergei's roots. When I was born in 1965, um, it was in New York when my dad was uh, at the United Nations. And um, I was, uh, I think, less than two when um, that uh, contract ended for him. And uh, we moved, uh, uh, well, back uh, to me for the first time to <laughs> Moscow. I grew up in Moscow. I grew up speaking Russian. I did not have English from uh, you know, birth uh, or natural bilingualism or anything like that. So, uh, English is an acquired language for me. And uh, we did go back to New York to the UN in 1975 when, when I was 10. Um, and we lived behind uh, the fence, so to speak, and in the Soviet compound uh, at the time. Um, actually, lived right outside of the compound, but I went to school there and. Uh, um, you know, those being the 70s, um, you know, I had to be accompanied by my parents anytime I'd be outside. And so we had really, very limited uh, interaction with the outside world, except for television and um, <laughs> some of my horseback riding classes that I uh, had um, sort of in the outside world. Although it's interesting, you know, although we lived in New York in the 70s, the uh, Really, the, the interaction was pretty much within the Soviet community at the time. The year Sergei was born, Lyndon B. Johnson became president of a country engaged in a horrible war in Vietnam. On the other side of the Iron Curtain, cosmonaut Alexei Leonov was the first person to walk in space for 12 minutes. Sergei grew up. Always surrounded by interpreters, you know. So there was a time when... Um, uh, I used to do my homework uh, in the uh, in the booth at the UN because uh, <laughs> I would after school I would take uh, the 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 bus the the, the Russian you know, mission bus to, um, uh, to to Manhattan and 
I would wait for my um, father to finish his work and uh, I would spend, you know, my free time or the time that I needed to kill to, uh, you know, in the booth. I would, you know, sit there and it was empty booth and uh, would be doing my homework. I would be observing interpreters at work. I would spend a lot of time in the interpreter's lounge where at that time, you know, people were playing chess and, <laughs> um, you know, talking to uh, uh, you know, interpreters. And uh, even in the um, apartment building where we lived, uh, uh, our neighbor was uh, Pavel Palashenko, who uh, then became Gorbachev's interpreter, you know, the famous Pavel. So um, this was my life, you know, basically surrounded by interpreters and uh, uh, you know, language professionals all my life. So that was, uh, my, my mom also, uh, she, um, she was a teacher of foreign languages. She taught Spanish and Romanian at Moscow University. So um, this was, you know, so I, I, I grew up there. I mean, you can not even imagine, you know, since my dad was also working on his doctorate dissertation. And so our breakfast conversations were about uh, presuppositions and implicatures, you know. <laughs> But yes, you know, that was, of course, it was America, you know, it was <laughs> formative years. And um, I, I went back to uh, Moscow, it was 1980. So I had to finish, um, you know, the ninth and 10th, you know, so to speak, high school um, in Moscow. And um, uh, so this was 1980. This was the summer of 1980, the, uh, the, Moscow, the famous Moscow Olympics. And he's further accused of rudely interfering with Olympic affairs. The roots of the Niet clearly go back to President Carter's decision to boycott the 1980 Olympics in Moscow because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. East -west the 1980 Olympic Games were remarkable, historic, because they were the first to happen in Eastern Europe, the only Summer Olympics until today to be held in a Slavic-language-speaking country and, until China in 2008, the only Olympic Games in a communist country. Only 18 nations participated, while 66 countries, led by the United States, boycotted the event because of the war in Afghanistan. For people in the Soviet Union, however, this international event was a window out into the world. The Olympics were quite open, you know, at that time, you know, you go around Moscow and there are, uh, you know, Coca-Cola stands everywhere. And <laughs> but, that, but that went away very, very soon afterwards. And, uh, you know, you switch on, you know, television and you have Channel 1, Channel 2 and Channel 3. And <laughs> naturally, you know, I started looking for other sources of information. I started tuning into, uh, you know, Voice of America in English and um, actually had a, got into trouble in my uh, Russian school, Soviet school in Moscow, because um, they asked me to do uh, current events. And I, I dutifully, you know, looked through Pravda and Izvestia, and I did not find anything of interest. <laughs> so I tuned in, <laughs> shortwave, um, got all the latest updates about, you know, the, uh, whatever it was at the time, the Iran-Contra scandal and, uh, you know, those things. And, um, you know, did the, uh, the current events and immediately was summoned to the principal's office for... Uh, anti-Soviet propaganda. <laughs> the Soviet Union was still a very closed uh, place at that time. Thankfully, Sergei can look back at that episode and laugh about it now. Having experienced New York in the 1970s, having grown up in the international profession that is conference interpreting, knowing the UN, and then living in Soviet Russia, Sergei kind of saw both sides of the Iron Curtain. 
with his family background in languages and natural curiosity, you might say he was destined to become an interpreter. I don't think my parents gave me much of a choice, to be honest with you. So <laughs> it was <laughs> it was a pretty much straight path into uh, the profession. Neither my father nor my mom, um, you know, themselves personally, you know, did anything in terms of, and I was probably the one who kind of rejected, right, uh, any help or assistance and participation. So I, I tried to do things on my own there. <laughs> we already know how it all played out. But at the time, it wasn't that straightforward. I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do with it. My dad especially wanted me to go into research. He um, really insisted that uh, I go for the PhD, uh, but this was the time now. Now we're in late 80s, uh, where, you know, perestroika is in full swing, you know, things are happening, um, a lot of changes in the country, and um, I was not interested in that at the time at all. So I said, you know, I want to, I want to go and start interpreting. I want to, you know, be a practitioner rather than you know, go into theory. You know, luckily the um, uh, Maurice Therese Institute of Foreign Languages, where I went, um, was a place where you could, um, you know, sort of explore what you wanted to do. You know, because we had all kinds of classes, and we did translation, we did interpreting. Um, you could choose your languages. Sergei had to interrupt his training to serve in the Soviet army for two years. When he came back, he graduated from the Maurice Therese Institute with English and Spanish, and then continued his studies. I went to the uh, UN interpreting school that we had in Moscow, uh, which was uh, quite exclusive, um, you know, amazing training. Oh my goodness, this was the best training ever, you can imagine. I mean, uh, now, now I compare... You know, well, let's say, you know, look at Monterey, look at uh, University of Maryland, where I now actually teach on Saturdays a little bit. Um, the system is such that you don't get your six hours of practice every day in the booth or, or, or just, you know, practice, 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 which is what we had. And, and we also got the keys to the training room. So we practiced for eight hours and nine hours and 10 hours and as long as it was necessary. But also the motivation, you know, the motivation, if you think about it, this is still the Soviet Union. Um, you have a group of six in the simultaneous group. And by the end of the training, right, what, what do you do? You're posted to uh, New York, Geneva, Vienna, you know, nice places. So this was, this was the motivation to uh, be able to pass that UN exam at the end. Alas, history was about to take a huge and unexpected turn. Gorbachev's dreams of holding the Soviet Union together may have received a death blow today. The Union's three Slavic republics announced they are forming a separate Commonwealth of Independent States. Russia, the Ukraine, and Belarusia control much of the Soviet Union's economic power, enough to challenge the rapidly fading strength of Gorbachev's central government. When we were about to finish the training. The Soviet Union started collapsing in earnest. Halfway through its evening news, when it got the first details of the agreement signed in Minsk. Quoting from it, the anchorwoman announced, the Soviet Union, as a subject of international and geopolitical reality, no longer exists. This whole Soviet system of secondments that they had back then uh, to the UN, through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, kind of collapsed. And so we got the training, but we didn't get to go to New York and Vienna and the nice places. Open to other former republics to join, it will be headquartered not in Moscow, 
but in the Belarusian capital, Minsk. I stayed uh, in Moscow, and um, after a couple of months of painful reflection, uh, unpacked my bags <laughs> that already to go to New York and started freelancing. And that was a different world. felt like uh, you know the world was finally opening up it was it felt really great I was at that right age at the time when um, you know all these changes sort of came naturally and quite welcome by us There's, you know, the, the kind of the lost generation of people about 10 years older than me who, um, you know, maybe were sort of the dissidents back in the 70s and then also sort of welcomed the, you know, all the changes, but then weren't able to adapt to the new life in the 90s and post-Soviet uh, society where it was all, you know, capitalism and market forces and... Um, a very different world, right? And some of those people are saying, oh, I want socialism back. You know, now you hear a lot about that. That also created tremendous opportunities for interpreters. Because, of course, when the country opens up, you have an influx of foreigners, from business people who want uh, your services for oil and gas. The first model UN came at that time to, 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 to Russia, can you imagine? <laughs> I started freelancing, but I also uh, found a full-time job for a short period of time with the uh, Washington Post uh, Moscow Bureau. David Remnick, uh, who is now uh, editor-in-chief of New Yorker magazine, was the bureau chief at the time. And so through the eyes of the Washington Post Moscow Bureau, I saw the real changes happening. You know, the actual, the, the, the attempted coup against Gorbachev, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this was the time of... Um, that, that I really got to see everything firsthand, you know, and being on those barricades and the, the Moscow White House, all that stuff. I told David at the time because um, he would uh, ask me to interpret, uh, you know, say live coverage or uh, from uh, the, 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 the State Duma deliberations or, you know, the parliament and things like that. And so I would, you know, they would just switch on the, the, the live transmission on television. I would put on my earphones and I would interpret. And uh, he would sit there with his uh, computer and he would type. And I said, David, if I could type that fast, I'd be a millionaire by now. <laughs> you know, their, their official situations, they would prefer uh, interpretation, translation. Uh, it made it faster for them. Everything had to be done in real time. They found this interesting way of using my interpretation skills and their extremely fast typing skills to, <laughs> to turn those news pieces around very, very fast.
it was um, very, you know, up close, right? And, um, and, and, and these changes were unraveling right before our eyes. And yet until the last moment, I don't think in my mind, I could imagine that the Soviet Union would actually collapse. <laughs> it seemed very unrealistic. And, and, and but when it happened, it just happened. It just happened. <laughs> So many things just happened during those tumultuous times in Russia. Helping American journalists at the Washington Post cover all that was going on was probably about as interesting as it gets. And yet... Freelancing uh, would be much more interesting and also from the financial standpoint. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I quit that. I still you know, did some work for them as a freelancer. But um, I started working for many different organizations and, uh, you know, just kind of throw myself out into the open freelance market. And um, it took me all around the former Soviet Union. I mean, from uh, Sakhalin for oil and gas projects uh, or beyond the Arctic Circle for the same or to uh, the deserts of Turkmenistan, you know, with the World Bank missions and, um, you know, the Caucasus, the Central Asian countries uh, everywhere. And, uh I really got to know, uh, you know, the, the, the former Soviet Union at that time quite, quite well. This was an amazing experience. It lasted for about four years. Um, I did all kinds of things. I mentioned the Model UN, you know, other conferences. Um, there was a lot of uh, Russian-American contacts at the time, and it was space exploration, um, oil and gas, um, all kinds of uh, People coming from, uh, I don't know, the California with their humanistic uh, philosophy lectures and uh, esoteric training sessions for all kinds of people. You can imagine. I mean, I remember there was one conference where um, something about esoteric training where they would be playing uh, flutes to the grasshoppers and channeling light through different mirrors and. Uh, all that in the context of some humanistic philosophy and inventing their own terminology. Uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, linguistically, it was quite challenging, actually. <laughs> then the uh, IMF and World Bank missions started coming in, and I uh, uh, took their, their, their test. At, uh, so they came and uh, selected a pool of freelancers, uh, and um, I became part of that and started working for, uh, for the IMF missions until uh, basically um, around 1993, early 94, when um, I was offered uh, a job at uh, the World Bank and, and I went to Washington. I've been there since. Talking to Sergei about his personal and professional life, I couldn't help but notice how he and his family seemed to be traveling back and forth between the Soviet Union or later Russia and the United States. Where did he think he belonged? Or was it neither here nor there? It was a little bit like that, uh, because I want to say that I felt at home in both places. And also at the time, I, um, I got my U.S. citizenship um, back, if you will. And uh, I said, do I need to take an oath or something? I said, no, you are. it's not that we're giving you citizenship. It's just a recognition of the fact that you've always been an American citizen. You know, so, so imagine that circumstance, right? I was offered a job with a freelance uh, assignment uh, with the uh, Russian Ministry of Aviation to go to Florida uh, for a month uh, where they were um, 
going to uh, negotiate uh, the uh, installation of American avionics on Russian airplanes. And um, uh, and they asked me, oh, you need to give your passport, you know, to, to, to process the visa. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, uh, of course, need a visa at the time. So I told them, oh, I already have a visa. You, know, you don't need to worry about it. But I had no clue how it was going to work. And, and so I, I went uh, to the airport with the two passports and put them both on the desk of the immigration officer. And immediately the red light came on. <laughs> And Comrade Major steps out and says, you know, what is this? And the soldier says, well, uh, there's a a Russian passport with no American visa, American passport with no Russian visa. What do we do? (laughs) And the Major looks at me and says, you know, how come? And I said, well, you know, I was born in the U.S., but, you know, my parents were Soviet citizens. So he says, oh, don't worry. So, soldier, you treat this American passport as his visa. Let him go. And, and, And then on arrival... Fort Lauderdale International Airport it was my first time after many years back to the U.S. And and I land, of course, I also was a little bit apprehensive, you know, what's going to happen now that I'm with this brand new American passport, you know, it has no visa stamps or anything. And um, this uh, immigration officer, you know, welcome home, son. That was the realization, that moment that, you know, this is the second home. Eventually, I think I'm now... 25 years later, realizing that um, by now, maybe home is neither here nor there, (laughs) although it's also in both places. But you kind of feel a little bit as a foreigner in both places. In any case, Sergei found a new professional home, first at the World Bank and then at the International Monetary Fund. So I took a position at the World Bank, and it wasn't until... Uh, 2000 that I moved to the uh, IMF where I am now Um, so we have a service where um, we have uh, interpreters and translators and translators are pure translators but anybody who is an interpreter has to be an interpreter slash translator there isn't uh, enough interpreting work uh, every day at headquarters to have a dedicated interpretation service and therefore, uh, all interpreters have to translate, but then uh, the chief interpreter can pull out interpreters from their translation assignments anytime something happens at headquarters or you need to send an admission. Uh, and of course, for our annual meetings, uh, the spring meetings, we have a separate arrangement where it's, uh, uh, it's a huge team of interpreters that needs to be assembled for that, a combination of staff and, and freelancers. In terms of language regime, um, neither the IMF nor the World Bank have official or, uh, well, official languages. The working language is English in both organizations. The the lack of official languages basically means that uh, the uh, language policy is quite relaxed. So um, anything goes. You need Georgian, you get Georgian. You need... Uh, Vietnamese, you get Vietnamese. So, although for the annual meetings, there is a uh, more restricted list of languages, uh, which is pretty much UN, UN plus Portuguese. One thing had stuck with Sergei from his freelancer days in post-Soviet Russia. Missions. That's interpreter jargon for a business trip, where we accompany one or more people outside of comfortable, climate-controlled meeting rooms. I, I've done... Uh, 
a lot, a lot of missions. Uh, hard to even count. But um, and this was really my favorite kind of work because this is the uh, the environment where the role of the interpreter is um, incredibly important, and you can feel it um, every single day. It's it's a very intense. An IMF mission is a very intense. Uh, assignment of about uh, two weeks where you're in the country um, with a group of IMF economists who are negotiating or uh, either a program, what we call a program, so a financial assistance package, or um, just taking stock of uh, the country's economy, which we call Article 4 surveillance missions, etc. And um, in, in, the, in that environment, uh, the uh, interpreter also does translation and does and has really the uh, ability to experience interpretation in all modes. I have to say, I'm nodding heavily as Sergei tells me this. I also really enjoy the direct contact with clients. But again, in, in, in the context of uh, you know, my work uh, back at the World Bank and uh, the IMF, you know, we have uh, a lot of um, interaction with our principals, with our clients, because um, a lot of interpreting happens outside of the booth. There's a lot of uh, bilateral meetings, a lot of missions. In fact, uh, that's the overwhelming majority of the work that we do uh, outside of the booth, in, in very close contact with, uh, with our clients. From consecutive or whispering during the uh, actual meetings to simultaneous, uh, maybe at outreach events or press conferences, to written translation late night in the hotel room, the whole package. This is what I like. Uh, is really to be able to um, exercise every muscle. Not just, you know, be in the booth and, uh, and be far away, detached from your clients, but to be there, to be on the ground, to see the results of your work. It's, it's, it's an amazing feeling, actually. What can I say, but yes, exactly. Being able to exercise all interpreting muscles is what makes this job so much fun. It was a real pleasure to ask Sergei about his professional career so far. We also talked in detail about the history of interpreting in Russia. So while you're here, I suggest you listen to the bonus part of this episode as well. There are lots of links and book recommendations that you should also check out. Today, though, this has been Lange Vem with Sergei Chernov and me, Alexander Drexel. All the earlier and future episodes of this little podcast can be found on my website and in pretty much any podcast app. If you like the show, do recommend it to a friend or colleague. I'll talk to you soon on Lange Femme.